When you think of the history of feminism, I imagine your mind might go to the suffragettes of the 19th and early 20th centuries and the fight to secure women a vote. Or maybe to second-wave feminism, the women's liberation movement of the 1960s and 70s, who fought for equal pay and reproductive freedom. If you were to cast your mind further back, perhaps you'd delight on Mary Wollstonecraft, writing in the late 18th century. But I imagine you don't associate feminism with the Tudors, or with the early modern period more generally. After today's podcast, you'll think differently. My guest today is the wonderful Dr. Hannah Dawson. Hannah is a senior lecturer in the history of political thought at King's College London, having previously held a fellowship at Queen's College Cambridge and taught at the University of Edinburgh and New College of the Humanities. She has written books on John Locke and on Thomas Hobbes, but her latest book is The Penguin Book of Feminist Writing, in which she has collected together 116 excerpts from feminist writers across the globe and across time. It's a really glorious book. And I asked her to come and talk to me about three of the earliest writers that she has featured in it. Hannah, thank you so much for talking to me about some of the many wonderful ideas that you've collected in your Penguin Book of Feminist Writing. We're going to be looking at some people writing in the early modern period. So we've got people writing in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. Can we legitimately call these writers feminists? (laughs) Well, as your question suggests, obviously feminism as a concept, as a word, was not invented explicitly until the 19th century by a French male socialist, indeed, But of course, there's a question about whether just because a word doesn't exist, nonetheless, can't we talk about a concept? And I think that in this instance, we can. And that's because if we think very basically about what feminism is, feminism is the insight that women as a class of people are oppressed. And it's the objection to that oppression. And it strikes me as totally clear that each of the cases that we're going to be talking about today, that all of the early modern feminists that I gathered, all absolutely, albeit in their different ways, see the ways in which women systematically as a class are disadvantaged by a patriarchal structure. So I think they can. And I also think that if you take a sort of Foucauldian view of power and resistance, that where you find power, you'll always find resistance. And if you think about early modern society, it was a deeply patriarchal place. And so, you know, if there are kind of, as it were, laws of nature that run through history, as I say, if one of those is that where there's power, you'll find resistance, where there's patriarchy, you'll find feminism, because all that feminism is, is the objection to patriarchy. And indeed, you know, if I might just kind of stand back a minute and think about my book as a whole, it turned out in my investigations that the history of feminism was actually as big in a way as the history of the world, because the history of the world is more or less all over the world, a kind of history of patriarchy. So I think it's legitimate. So if we're talking about the early modern period, Perhaps it would be useful to start by thinking about 
what we mean by patriarchy and what were the systems that were in place at the time that women were resisting and responding to? Yes. At the time, patriarchy was a very kind of literal reality in the sense that both households and polities were ruled by patriarchs, that's to say by fathers and monarchs who were standardly coded male, even if, as we know, there were many queens. But nonetheless, that didn't stop the kind of broad patriarchal understanding of rulership. But I think that we can also think about patriarchy in a kind of broader structural sense that we would recognise. That's to say a kind of set of interconnected structures of oppression that include everything from, on the one hand, violence, government, structures of education, all the way through to beliefs and norms about what the difference between men and women were. So if you think, for example, at the kind of structural end, you think about education, the differential educational paths that boys and girls were set on. Boys educated for independence, public life, for government, girls educated for virtue and self-restraint. If you think about the epistemology, the cultural norms that imbued perceptions of men and women, you can think about the kind of humoral theory, for example, which thought that the female body was inferior to the male body, that the woman's body was cold and wet and the man's body was hot and dry, and that this had all sorts of implications for natural inferiority and natural superiority. And if you think very precisely, and this goes to a lot of the kind of early modern feminist concerns, you think very precisely about the institution of marriage. As you know, under the system of English common law, there was the system of coverture. And according to that, the wife's identity, the wife's person was subsumed by the husband's identity, which meant that the woman had no identity of her own, no property of her own. All the things that she supposedly owned were in fact his. So even, for example, the rings that he might give her were his. A kind of crucial correlation here has to do with rape, that there was really no such thing conceptually as marital rape, because once you were thought to have consented to marriage, you were thought to have consented to sex. And indeed, the husband might legitimately beat the wife if she did not bend to his will in a peaceful way. So I think that what you can see, therefore, is patriarchy in the sense of an interconnected series of structures and norms and beliefs, all of which overlappingly and mutually reinforcingly, as it were, erect a situation of unequal power and dependence between men and women. And it's that sort of extraordinary material reality that I think is, if you like, the best evidence and the best argument for calling these women feminists, because their reality was deeply patriarchal. They wrote against it. What more could we want in order to seek a sort of definition of feminism? Another thing to say, of course, is that there was actually a very live debate called the Querelle des Femmes, which is exactly sort of a debate about women, what their natural capacities were, whether they were virtuous or vicious. And this debate often revolved, at least in its kind of original incarnations in the 14th and 15th centuries, around the question of were men better than women or women better than men. So Erasmus, for example, famously in the 15th century, took the view that women were inferior to men. And I quote says, a woman is always a woman, that is, a fool, whatever part she may have chosen to play. 
So that deep saturation in the culture that what women are is stupid, foolish, lacking reason. And it seems to me that it's that kind of stereotype, it's that deep belief about the nature of women that these theorists in their various ways are interested in refuting. It's worth noting that in the 17th century, this debate, this querelle des femmes, transmutes and the argument becomes less about whether women are better than men or the other way around, but arguments for the equality of men and women are marshalled. And yeah, if we think about the texts in my book, both Christine de Pizan and Jane Anger in their ways will go on to make arguments for the superiority of women in a way, whereas Mary Astor and Mary Wollstonecraft will go on to talk about the equality between the minds of men and women. That's really interesting and a very clear definition of something structural and social and cultural and totally dominating in terms of a way of being and thinking. And so dominating was it that we have to imagine that many women would have absolutely colluded in it and have believed it, that men were superior, that they deserved to be in these positions of power and rule and influence and that men were to be favoured. Yes. I mean, that strikes me as a deeply interesting question in itself, the extent to which women, as it were, were complicit in the norms that oppressed them. And I think that there are lots of things to be said about that. I mean, one thing that exactly speaks to your point is that many early modern feminists precisely spend a lot of their time inveighing against the women who as Mary Astle says, or Mary Wollstonecraft will say, love their chains. So they're frustrated with their sisters for imbibing this, for believing this. But they also are deeply sympathetic to the completely good reasons why women would buy this. That's to say, if you live in a situation of unequal power, if you're dependent upon men, for your well-being, your survival, your safety, your happiness, your thriving, then, of course, you're going to, as it were, play by their rules. There isn't a space, as it were, outside patriarchy. I mean, these women in their different ways were trying to articulate that, were trying to carve that space in their writing. They were writing in this kind of resistance space against this extraordinary system. And so they were deeply sympathetic as well. They tried themselves to destroy the game, but they knew that women couldn't really destroy the game, so they knew they had to play it instead. Yes, that makes absolute sense. Catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers and over on the Warfare Podcast we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected... And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never-ending. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on the front line of military history. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Okay, well, let's have a look at some of these women. We're starting with Christine de Pizan, famously, and we're talking about an extract, particularly about a bigger book here, the book of the City of Ladies. So introduce us. Now, I notice in your book, I should say, that you've chosen not to give lots of biographical information, but it would be very useful to situate her in time and place a little bit. Definitely. And can I just say about that question, I mean, obviously, I went back and forth a lot in terms of thinking about the extent to which I wanted to write biographically about these women. And in the end, I decided, having actually written quite a lot of biographies of these people, I decided that I wouldn't do it for many reasons. But perhaps the most important one is that I feel like that women writing find it almost impossible to be thought of as writers in their own right, as it were, that they are continually kind of reduced to their biographies. When you think about Mary Wollstonecraft, for example, you think about her extraordinary, tragic life. And everyone says, oh, well, she was just writing about the personal. And I wanted to unfetter these women from their biographies and let them speak as thinkers, as writers. So it was a kind of piece of feminist praxis to do that. But obviously, I did, as you intimate, give a kind of vague constellation in terms of time and place. So everyone's got their birth place and their birth date and when they died and where they died. Anyway, yes, so Christine de Pizan was herself born in Venice, daughter of Thomas de Pizan, which is why she has that name, but then moves to France as part of the court of Charles V. And sadly, but also in the end, perhaps kind of fortuitously for her, she's widowed very young and she's left to have to fend for herself and look after her children, support her mother. And she takes up her pen to support herself and writes a whole range of things. She writes a book of political theory called The Book of the Body Politic. She writes about Charles V. She writes about fortune. She writes poetry. And she writes this extraordinary book called The City of Ladies in 1405. And... Christine de Pizan's City of Ladies is the extract with which I begin my Penguin Book of Feminist Writing. And I begin at the beginning of her text. And we find at the beginning of her text, Christine sitting in absolute abjection in her study, surrounded by books written by men that have not a good word to say about women. 
and she describes what it's like to be enmeshed and trapped within these literal walls of words that deny her virtue and goodness and reason. And she ends up in despair, bemoaning the fact that God made her a woman. And perhaps I might read maybe just a, a sort of line from it, because I think it's so evocative about the kind of psychological effect of patriarchal culture, which I think that a lot of these early modern feminists are incredibly eloquent about. It seems to me that that's one of their primary concerns, is exactly bringing out what it feels like to internalise norms, not to approve of them, but as it were, when they get into your bones, what it's like to grow up surrounded by the view that you're inferior and how very melancholic that makes you. And here I can feel myself going off on a tangent, but I do think it's striking in terms of thinking about threads that run through the history of feminism, the extent to which women are associated with melancholy, they're associated with madness. And of course, in part, that's a kind of means of keeping them down, but in part, it's also a function of what it's like to be every day, in every moment, told that you're inferior. You might well go mad in such a situation. So Christine is sitting there and she says that in contemplating how it was that God had created this vile thing of woman, she said, this thought inspired such a great sense of disgust and sadness in me that I began to despise myself and the whole of my sex as an aberration in nature. And she goes on, sick at heart, in my lament to God, I uttered these and many other foolish words since I thought myself very unfortunate that he had given me a female form. So there she is at rock bottom, at which point in a blaze of light, three women appear to her who are Lady Reason, Lady Rectitude and Lady Justice. And they say, Christine, we have come to help you and comfort you and lift you out of this cloud of bond. And what we're going to do with you is we're going to help you build a city of ladies, which will be a city not only that demonstrates the greatness of women, but also is a refuge from the harassment and slander of men. And what they mean by that is that they're going to encourage her to use her pen as her spade and her tools of construction. And she's going to write out kind of brick by brick, chapter by chapter, accounts of great women in history that will testify against all the false words of the men with which she's surrounded in her study. So the ladies that she goes on to describe are an amazing array. So there are Amazons, there are warriors, there are queens, but there are also I think it's important to note there are also, as you know, they were called in those days, common women who cared for the sick, who helped bury the dead, who loved their children. And I think there's a very holistic understanding of greatness in women that Christine builds. That's to say, not just the queens, but also the women who care every day for others. And there's quite an interesting treatment of Mary Magdalene, I think. So Mary Magdalene is weeping for her brother, the leper, and Jesus sees her weeping and says, why are you weeping? And she says, for my brother, and he raises her brother from the dead. And Christine de Pizan talks really interestingly about the power of the tears of women, the weeping of women, and what that signifies, which is that it signifies an extraordinary compassion for humankind and just what a great thing that is. 
So you have rulers and you have compassion. I'm really struck in this extract that you've chosen, of course, not only by how difficult it must have been to choose the extracts, but also by the fact that when she's going through this period of despondency and thinking about everything she's read that men have said, you know, these awful damning things about women, she said, the vessel in which all sin and evil of the world has been collected. She says also that she could find no evidence from her experience to bear out such an opinion, such a negative view of women. And when the three ladies appear to her, they say, we want to challenge these misconceptions that have made you reject what you know. And I thought that was fascinating because it's what we would today call gaslighting, right? They're saying, you've been gaslit. You've been told that what you know to be true is not true. And you've come to believe it's not true, even though your experience tells you it is. And I was also really struck, centuries before the scientific revolution, we've got a woman who's going, but experience says this. Yeah, that is absolutely right. Funnily enough, I think it's something that I talk a lot about with my students because there's always a question, obviously, when you're making an argument as to what are you going to draw on to make your argument? And exactly as you say, as you move into the 17th century with the scientific revolution, the new philosophy, you have precisely this marshalling of experience against authority. And here you have Christine de Pizan, exactly as you say, the evidence of my eyes tells me that I am not inferior and that women can be great, but everybody tells me different. It's a kind of rhetorical move that she's making there. I mean, she knows where she's going in this book. So the battle between experience and authority was a sort of old one that had been played out in various kind of epistemological and metaphysical tracts. And I think that Christine de Pisa here is exactly picking up on that kind of old question at the source of demonstration, the source of truth, and saying right from the start, she's sounding a note to the reader to say, I have evidence, I have experience on my side here. So it's a rhetorical tool. But it also speaks to this business of gaslighting, you're absolutely right. And this was another thing that I just found run through and through the feminist text that I read. And it relates to this just recurrent incredulity on the part of women writing that their own reason, their own equality, their own value, their own status as human beings was so evident. It was so palpable. You know, there wasn't any doubting it, and yet there it was, again and again, refuted. What's sort of tragic about the history of feminism is that it's a really good argument, and she's already making it in the 15th century, and it is amazing that it doesn't seem to cut through always. Mm. That's absolutely right, because for our next text, we're fast-forwarding actually almost two centuries through to 1589, and to a pamphlet by Jane Anger, but... As you indicate, this is not a real name. This is a John Doe, but with an element of rage. Yeah, so Jane Anger. So we don't know if this is a real name. I mean, it's quite plausible. Jane Anger, there are records of Jane Angers in England at the time. So it could have been her name. But obviously, it's striking that the surname is Anger and that this is a text filled with rage. It's also striking if one thinks about the authorial voice, the way in which she speaks on behalf of all women. She says to all women in general, 
she speaks in the voice of we women. So she's invoking this kind of collective voice, which is unusual, both in relation to the way that men would stand to be right. They didn't write we met. They just wrote from this sort of supposed point of objectivity and didn't even have to think about who they were, as it were. But she wrote we women, kind of inserting herself into the discourse. We can't know whether this was her real name. I think it's highly likely that she probably gave herself the name Anger because it was so apt to her point, which was fury. I love her opening line, fie on the falsehood of men, whose minds go oft a-madding and whose tongues cannot so soon be wagging, but straight they fall a-tattling, turning our ideas on their head about who's the ones tattling. But then she has this series of pairing plays on words. What do you think she's really saying here? Mm. Well, it's the most amazing beginning. And if I just read the next sentence where she says, was there ever any so abused, so slandered, so railed upon or so wickedly handled undeservedly as a we women? She's talking here about what Christine de Pizan was talking about, which is the kind of impenetrable mesh of language that describes women that it's almost impossible to pierce, to navigate through, to find oneself in. If you're surrounded by men slandering you, it's very hard to kind of, as it were, find another position from which to speak, another truth about oneself. And it's specifically what she's talking about, and you know all about this, Susie, from your work on France, is the kind of sexual double standard that women are subjected to at this time. So the thought that if a woman refuses the sexual advances of a man, if she's chaste, then she's thought of as kind of cruel and coy and ungrateful. But if she accepts them, then she's immediate. Or if she, not even if she accepts them, but she just sort of gives them an inch, as it were. They'll then go round proclaiming to the town that she's a terrible whore. So that women cannot win, that there is no way in terms of sexuality that women can win here. So fie on the falsehood of men. This is about what it's like to be in a society where, in a way, the most important thing that you had as a woman, you didn't really own anything, but what you did have was your name. And how easy it was to lose it because a man might go around spreading rumours about you, even if they weren't true. You get the kind of anxiety, the intensity of what it's like to be living always on the edge of men's judgment and of men's slander, men's words about you. And I really like one of the lines that you've chosen to quote here in which she says, our disposition naughty for not agreeing with their vile minds and our fury dangerous because it will not bear with their knavish behaviours. And these are the judgments that are made on women that if they do not go along with behaviours that are knavish, then their righteous anger, their fury, is proclaimed dangerous, that they are called naughty because they don't agree with the vileness of talk about them or behaviour. And this constant renaming of women's emotions seems to me really interesting and contains so many ideas that still ring true today. And in fact, throughout your book, there's a continuity across the centuries. It seems fascinating to me. Yes, exactly. Anything that women do will be coded as vicious and as negative. Women are trapped in this world of redescription that however virtuous they try to behave, that they will always be dragged back to this vice box. There's no way 
out of that. That is exactly what she's talking about. I mean, the thing that I find makes this text really powerful is that she understands the sort of double prongness, if you like, of this trap that women are in. That on the one hand, it's linguistic and cultural and psychological, that every move that a woman makes to try to escape the slander of men will find itself in a snare. There's no way out. But also, and this is crucial, the reason that's so problematic is because it is yoked to male violence. And so the text is as much about actually the experience of womanhood being one of fleeing harassment, whether that's verbal or physical. There's a continuity between cruel words, between redescription, between gaslighting, exactly as you say, and then physical violence mm -hmm. and not having the power to resist that. It's quite a bind. Which very neatly takes us on to our next thinker, who's Mary Astor, who is precisely talking about the nature of the bind. <laughs> so introduce us to her and then we'll have a think about what she has to say. Yes. So here we are now in the second half and the end of the 17th century. Mary Astle, born in 1666, daughter of a coal merchant who died when she was quite young, when she was 12, left the family in debt. So she doesn't come from a very auspicious place socially. But luckily for her, she had an uncle, Ralph, who saw that she was bright and took it upon himself to help her get an education. And then quite quickly, she came down to London and set about via patronage and then earning money. She became a professional writer and she also, like Christine de Vizan, wrote on many subjects. She was a divine right Tory, wrote a lot about that, but she also wrote two really amazing texts about women. The first is called A Serious Proposal to the Ladies, which was written in 1694. And that proposes the setting up of an academy for women. And then the second one, the one that I've extracted from in the book, is her Reflections Upon Marriage, which was first published in 1700. And in that book, she's writing ostensibly in response to the huge furore that this very famous divorce case had provoked, which was that between the Duke of Mazarin and Hortense Mancini. So Hortense Mancini was stuck in this awful marriage, desperately wanted to leave. And everyone had a view. I mean, interestingly, Mary Astor, you know, she's a divine right Tory. She believes in passive obedience. She believes that you've got your lot in life. You better just suck it up and then, you know, look forward to eternal bliss, especially if you've played your part properly on earth. So she doesn't think that wives in unhappy, unequal marriages have the right to leave their husbands. This is not a pro-divorce book. But what's kind of amazing about it, especially given her Tory position and her anti-divorce stance, is the incredibly deep, poignant critique that she gives of the horror that comes from being stuck in an early modern marriage. And the kind of crux of her critique is that a wife is completely dependent on the absolute power of her husband. And that this is, to invoke a Republican concept of the time, that this is slavery. 
What is a slave? A slave is someone who's subject to the will of another. And that is what she sees as the juridical constitution of marriage. I mean, it's so interesting, as I say, because she's a Tory and she hates the Whigs who are making these arguments about how the subjects of England need to rise up against the tyrant Charles II because he's turning them into slaves. And she disagrees with them entirely. But when it comes to marriage, she says to them, people like John Locke, she says, how can you go about saying how awful it is that you're enslaved to Charles II insofar as he has absolute power over you, and yet you are condemning all wives to precisely this situation that you say is unconscionable? And that leads her to ask her famous question, which I quote in the book. She says famously, if all men are born free, how is it that all women are born slaves? So this is her calling out the Whigs, calling out supposed Enlightenment thinkers like John Locke, who had banged on about freedom and equality and liberty and saying, how amazing. You've written a whole eloquent treatise about this, and yet you don't count women in that. And indeed, it is worth saying about John Locke, supposed, you know, father of liberalism and great hero, that he did think that within a marriage, women were less able than men by nature. And that's why it was right for husbands to have jurisdiction over their wives. And Astor was taking him up on that as well, because she's saying, isn't she, that, as she says, you wouldn't assume that a governor has more sense than their subjects. They're just in power. They don't have more intellectual power. So why does it follow, therefore, that a domestic governor, i.e. a husband, has more sense than his subject, i.e. his wife? So even on that, she's challenging Locke. Absolutely. And that, of course, speaks to her broader point, which is another kind of absolutely core feminist thought, it seems to me, which is that just because the world is a certain way, that doesn't make it right. Her whole interest is trying to drive a wedge between power and force and right and justice. So just because people are in power, we don't say, therefore, that they are more wise than the people they're ruling. So it's to kind of rethink the world rather than as this instantiation of inevitable nature, to see it instead as an incredibly powerful construction of patriarchy. And once you start to see it as a construction, as a set of contingent accidents of power, as opposed to a kind of emanation of justice, Everything can start to be completely different. And of course, later feminists will pick that up and say, look, the fact that women are at home and men are in the public sphere, the fact that women are caring and men are hunting or whatever they're doing, just because that is the way things are, it doesn't mean that's the way things have to be. There's nothing natural about it. And what Astle does is give this amazing constructivist account of reality, to say that the way things are is a function of custom, not of nature. So therefore, Mm. it's not necessarily right, and nor is it necessarily set in stone. And there's a brilliant line that she has to explain this, where she talks about, just because a man might happen to look after pigs, it doesn't mean that he's made for that. Which is a sort of cutting way of saying, just because women are subject to men, 
in this world. It doesn't mean that they're made for subjection. Indeed, they have minds that are equally rational and of equal potential to men. It's just that, unfortunately, they're not educated as much as men's minds, which is why they're often not as good. How important do you think these ideas were? Did they really clear the ground or is it that actually by the late 18th century things are picking up and starting anew and these early writers are really forgotten? Insofar as, as it were, feminists keep on having to make the basic points, (laughs) that's a kind of just immediate demonstration of the fact that it's not cutting through. Judith Bennett, she has this very powerful concept of the patriarchal equilibrium, which is that idea that feminists might push against it. And you see, for example, in the English civil wars, a kind of space being opened up and carved out by women, level of women petitioning parliament. Or you see, for example, exactly in the end of the 18th century with the French Revolution, you see this kind of space opening up for women, women making these points. But what is extraordinary, taking the long view, is just how effective the patriarchy is at reasserting itself. So you have these texts, these insights, but it's as though the ground closes over them. I mean, I'm a historian of ideas, so of course I think that once they're out there, they kind of have an agency, they have scope, even if, for example, their agency is just 20th century figures rediscovering Jane Anger and loving her and talking about her now. There's a kind of ongoing power. But I think you're completely right that they didn't succeed. Mm. So if I were to play devil's or patriarch's advocate in this instance, I suppose I would say that these are ideas written by elite women, even though if one of them was the daughter of a coal merchant, they can write. By definition, they're literate and probably elite. And they perhaps are speaking just to a very thin class of society and not penetrating down. What would you say to that? So I think that even if, as it were, no one had ever read Jane Anger, I still think she's important. And I also think that ideas draw on material realities. They refer to reality, to truths in the world. And I think that they were certainly picking up on more widespread frustrations with patriarchy. I mean, you know this yourself from thinking about court records, that it's not the case that illiterate women weren't resisting, navigating, pushing back against, playing with the strictures. It's not that there was a realm of no resistance. I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, I absolutely was playing, as I say, devil's advocate, because in everything I've found on my women, inverted commas, in France, who are very ordinary, what we'd say lower class, but lower status women, shows very much that if we're looking at women's lives of those who are very much ordinary, very much of the lower status, lower class women, that we absolutely see them resisting And we absolutely see them showing signs of not colluding, as well as colluding with patriarchy. But we also see the ways in which they push back and they use, I think Natalie Seaman Davis called the power lodges in nooks and crannies. Whatever nook or cranny of power they have, they push back against what men are doing to them. So, Dr. Hannah Dawson, thank you so much for your time. It's been a wonderful exposition of these fascinating ideas. And I urge everyone to pick up a copy of the penguin book of feminist writing and find many many other gems that will whet your appetite for more if you enjoyed this episode please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media and also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment thank you 
History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.